Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Good evening. I am so honored to be speaking to you and grateful for the opportunity to share some of my thoughts with the fine people at the University of Steubenville. In the circles I run in, just to mention the word, you just say Steubenville, and it conjures up this vision of a, a vibrant Catholic community on fire with love for Christ and relentlessly, relentlessly pursuing the truth. Uh, I was here a few years ago for a conference, and I have to report that was the only time I've ever been here. But my most vivid memory was of being at Mass in this chapel, and of maybe for the first time in my life, experiencing at that point in the Mass when we say, lift up your hearts, I felt us all do that. It was the first time I ever actually felt that in a way. I don't want to say that we don't have good Catholic stuff going on in Minnesota. <laughs> I don't mean that, but it was just amazing. I felt it was sort of cosmic. We were all there and we lifted up our hearts and I knew it, it was really wonderful. So when I got this invitation, I was like, yeah, I'm coming out. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm really eager to tell you about some of the things I've discovered about the question that interests us here tonight and also of critical importance, its implications for our mission as Catholics. I think we can all agree that the question, the meaning of the human person and why it is that God made us male and female, is really the question of our era, wouldn't you say? And I would also add that we haven't taken it seriously enough all these centuries we let other people sweep away um, the, the wisdom of centuries and replace it with craziness. I don't know. I don't know if it's fair to say we've let them do it. <laughs> Somehow it happened. And so, um, uh, to me, I hope to persuade you that what I want to say tonight is actually the one thing that will give us the leverage we need in the culture wars we're fighting now. So it would be an understatement of the first magnitude to point out that we are in the midst of a crisis in our culture around this issue. And it seems to me that the thrust of the work we share, this is all of our work, is ordered not only toward saving souls, but also toward saving Western civilization itself, provided that can still be done. And we all have to hope that it can, right? I mean. Let's forget I said that. I'm sure it can be done. But it's going to take all of us working together. So I only have, only have what amounts to a few minutes with you. Um, I teach a whole semester course on the topic I'm going to be talking about. Um, so I'm going to jump into, our, into the topic without a lot of preliminaries. The subtitle of my talk, Complementarity as Mission, is a reference to a passage found originally in St. John Paul II's letter to women, and then also found in the Compendium on the Social Doctrine of the Church. And it is this passage that will provide us with our starting place and give our reflections their proper context. I am sure it is already well understood in this audience that John Paul II tells us in many places that the complementarity that characterizes the nature of man and woman is what, and here's a quote for you, allows each person to experience the interpersonal and reciprocal relationship um, as a gift. The theme of self-gift runs through, the, through his work like a backbone throughout his entire corpus. But what may not be so widely recognized is that in his letter to women, John Paul goes a bit further. He tells us that this complementarity, or relational uniduality, actually constitutes our mission. He states, to this unity of the two, God has entrusted 
not only the work of procreation and family life, but the creation of history itself. Here we learn, learn that the unity that arises from the relationship of a man and a woman is found not only in the marital act and our natural capacity to create life. Men and women do not just make families together, we make history together. It is quite significant that his claim is also included in the compendium. It can only mean that our creation as two equal but differentiated human persons is ordered ultimately toward the realization of the church's entire social vision. Now the nature of the self-gift that characterizes the marital act is certainly at the foundations of human civilization. It's the primordial way in which we cooperate with the creative action of God and it is unquestionably our point of entry into history. Indeed, as John Paul II tells us in Love and Responsibility, through the marital act, we participate in the very transmission of existence. Shall I say that again? In the marital act, we participate in the very transmission of existence something that belongs to him. But it, it is this second dimension of complementarity that I would like to also explore with you here. We need to understand much, much better how this relational uni-duality that he refers to is to inform our mission to create human history because we have not been doing a very good job of that. What I hope to persuade you of is that an understanding of his message on, in this regard may provide us with the leverage we seek as we try to snatch our culture literally from the jaws of death. In fact, I would suggest that not only is it perhaps the single most important question of our era, but that what happens next, and perhaps for generations to come, will be determined by our grasping here, in this time and place, not somewhere else, but here, right now, tonight, the answer to it. Every generation must rise to the challenge of their time, and it seems clear to me that this is uniquely our question, our challenge. And coincidentally, or perhaps more properly, providentially, Thanks to the work of John Paul II, we are now only now poised to offer a proper response. Previous generations quite likely would have poo-pooed the question as settled. Most of those walking the streets of our great country would argue that it is irrelevant or worse, either misogynist or heterocentric or something. But I would say that it is pretty obvious that we cannot afford to take this question the question of woman and man, their equality and their difference, for granted any longer. The stakes are too high. The struggle has, in fact, cosmic proportions. And in a sense, we are running out of time. Now, in a few minutes, we will jump into an exploration of complementarity itself, considering first what it means to say we are equal, and then what makes it dif us different. And then we'll turn our attention to something I hope will interest you. Though my work is grounded in St. John Paul II, of course, I do have some additional insights into the feminine genius. And I have taken the adventurous step of deriving an account of the masculine genius as well. And let me just state from the outset, there is one. That was a little joke. <laughs> I mean, I have had men say, can I come, can this, what do they say sometimes, can the second sex come or something like that, you know, there is one, yeah, and um, so hang on there, men, it's coming. I know JV2 didn't write about it, that's okay, I did. <laughs> and so unless we get the hook, I get the hook, we'll have to say uh, something about what all this means for our mission too, so we'll get to that. 
but I want to start not with philosophy or theology, not with a theoretical, but with some examples from the realm of lived human experience and a, with a really brief look at what the science says about this topic. Doing so will give us a starting place in common experience and will serve as an example of what we mean when we say that God is truly the author of all truth. My husband Andrew and I have a monthly faith meeting with a group of adult men and women. It's held at an old church close to downtown St. Paul. We have a holy hour, and then we go down to the basement for our meeting. One time, just a few, a couple of years ago, when we were there, saints preserve us, and you've got to say that with an Irish accent, saints preserve us, there was a very large bat flying around the room when we entered. And I kid you not, within two seconds and with no discussion or forethought, all of the women were fighting for space under the one table in the room, <laughs> including my daughter Maddie, who I think was about 11 at the time. We're all laying as close to the floor as we could. I'm not kidding, we were like, there's a table, maybe, you know, like one of those kind of longish eight foot tables, or one table, we're all underneath it, and we're all going like this. Within the same two seconds, all of the men, all of them, there was not one man, man underneath that table, all of the men had found some kind of instrument with which to capture the bat. <laughs> it was phenomenal. They found brooms, sticks, a dustpan, paper bags, a plastic garbage bag, a dust mop, anything. And, of course, working together, they captured the bat. And, of course, all the women breathed a sigh of relief, but said, oh, please, don't kill the poor thing. <laughs> now, this does not mean that if there were no men there, we women couldn't have done something about it. But I believe I can say with some certainty that this particular group of women would have ceded the room to the bat. We would have called the maintenance man and retreated to the nearest coffee shop, no question about it. <laughs> now here's another example. This one may be more personally satisfying for the women in the room. I know I look young. That's a joke. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe, maybe I do. <laughs> but some of you may be wondering how it is that my husband and I, whom I admit have both passed the halfway mark of life by some years, happen to have someone, Maddie, is now a 13-year-old at this point in our lives. That's a story of its own. I don't have time to tell you the whole of it. It will have to suffice for me to say that we adopted her as a newborn. She was born exactly one week after my 50th birthday. You can do the math. Though it was hard, I quickly learned why people have their children young. To Andrew's surprise, and sort of to mine as well, mysteriously, I knew just what to do, and things were going pretty well. One night, probably about a week and a half after we brought her home, Andrew was so kind, he suggested I go take a nap. I mean, I felt like I was in the twilight zone. You have no idea what it's like to not get any sleep. Or maybe you do, you're students, that's right. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> so you know, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so he said, yeah, go take a nap. I'll take care of Maddie for a while. Early in the evening, I came out into the kitchen. Now our kitchen, it's a fairly small, it's, well, it's not so small, but in the middle of it is a butcher block table like a, an island, right? Not that big, maybe twice the size of this thing, maybe three times, not a big one. We have a tile floor, and I walk out into the kitchen, and what do I see? There is Maddie, sleeping on top of the butcher block table, wrapped in a blanket, Andrew, nowhere to be found. <laughs> About 20 minutes later, Andrew came back, and I will not tell you, I couldn't really, not in the presence of Christ, tell you what I said. <laughs> and he goes, what's the big deal? She's too little to roll over. She's not going to fall off. And every time I tell this story in public, the women gasp. And the men go, yeah, what's the big deal? 
Okay, now these are, these are not culturally determined. Okay. So familiar examples. The feminists in our culture will tell you that it is all a matter of conditioning, not anything inherent to who we are as embodied persons, but here is what the science actually reveals. First, let's be very clear about one thing in particular. Researchers report that boys and girls exhibit male and female personality traits from the day they are born, within four hours of birth. It is on the record that there are scientists of both sexes who began their research secure in the conviction that they would demonstrate that these traits are a result of socialization. They had to change their tune when the data revealed it to be otherwise. These were scientists who became parents, who began to raise their children, and determined to avoid any hint of the dreaded stereotyping, set it up completely differently. I guess that means no pink blankets, no blue blankets, no ribbons, um, swords for the little girls and dollies for the boys. I'm not really sure, but they were determined that they were going to raise their children in some sort of asexual way. But in the end, they were forced to admit that male newborns behave like boys and female newborns behave like girls, right from the start. Female babies are judged to be more sensitive, the males to be stronger. I told my mother about this. She had six kids, some boys, some girls, and she said, well, they just could have called me. I mean, <laughs> how much money did they spend proving what I already knew? So here are just a few examples of what has been scientifically demonstrated. And I don't even need to get into the neuroscience, and there's plenty of that already. It's out there. Okay. Baby girls look at faces. Baby boys look at objects. A little boy will look at the mobile above his crib. The little girl will look at your face. You test this. You'll see. Three-day-old girls maintain eye contact with a silent adult twice as long as boys. Girls will look even longer if the adult talks. It makes no difference to boys. <laughs> you laugh, you laugh, but you wait. Guys, you wait, you wait, you wait, you'll see. In contrast to one-day-old male babies, one-day-old baby girls respond to the sound of human distress. They can already distinguish an infant's cry from other noise. Boys cannot. Go ahead and laugh, but you'll see. Four-month-old girls recognize people they know from photographs. Boys can't. When new toys are introduced in a nursery school, the boys drop what they are doing and go see new toys. The girls do the same when new children arrive. No matter what you give a boy to play with, this is scientifically, quantitatively, the scientists want to get into the act here, you go ahead. No matter what you give a boy to play with, he will make a truck or a sword out of it. <laughs> Barbie dolls, you give them a Barbie doll, they're going like, they're lining them up and playing war, right? Little girls will wrap almost anything in a blanket and carry it around like a baby. Okay. And by the way, the same evidence shows up across cultures and throughout history. Girls are the babysitters in virtually every culture. Right. Girls show more interest in babies. Boys are more interested in other things. So when we find ourselves in a situation where people feel threatened by the suggestion that men and women are different. In my own case, I've had to work hard just to convince people that this is a legitimate area of research. When that happens, we can be confident that the church's teaching on complementarity is not some plot hatched by celibate white males intended to subvert women or return them to the status of kitchen help or something like that. Sorry about it. In what follows, we will see that scripture reveals what science is only just now discovering, that man and woman are fundamentally equal, but constitute different and complementary ways of being in the world. I think what I say next will make clear how closely aligned these two accounts from separate disciplines 
science and theology seem to be. So we are on the right track, and without question, God is indeed the author of all truth. So I'll try to bring some additional examples in as we go along. But now we will turn our attention to Genesis 1 and 2, and the meaning to be derived from those passages concerning the nature of woman in relation to man. And what I'm going to present next is what's in written form, uh, much longer, much more detailed uh, in this journal. Now it is, of course, common knowledge now that John Paul II grounds both his theology of the, bo- of the body and his account of complementarity in the first two chapters of Genesis. I have spent the last several years investigating a claim he makes in the second and third general audiences, that Genesis 1 reveals the meaning of man in the objective sense, while Genesis 2 reveals the meaning of man in the concrete subjective sense. And I have shown in this article that John Paul has that right. I I think he does. His claim can be demonstrated in particular. He does not bother to prove it in the theology of the body. He says in audience number seven that he's not going to go any further down that road. He's interested in the body. So I said, okay, that's all right. I'll I'll prove that. I'll take it. I'll take that up. Um, so his claim can be demonstrated by looking at these passages through the lens of the metaphysical anthropology of Aquinas. And I would love to share with you the results of my entire investigation now that I have the microphone. But at some point, they would really bring out the hook, so I can't do that. So you'll have to get the book, or maybe see the movie when it comes out, or whatever. (laughs) So I've been pondering these two creation accounts for a little over seven years, looking into the meaning in the original language, And by the way, in case there's any scripture scholars here, I am not one, but I did get help from Monsignor Michael McGee. Is God hot here anywhere? I just want to say this just in case. Um, I got help from Monsignor Michael McGee at St. Charles Borromeo Seminary in Philadelphia. And he's the one who told me I had something to say. Yeah, he said, yes, you can say this. Um, So I've been thinking about them sort of incessantly and it has led me to some new insights into these texts. So Jesus' instruction to the Pharisees that we must return to the beginning to discover the meaning of marriage, and John Paul II's decision to do exactly that, which is what led to the theology of the body, were so breathtakingly apt, I have no words to explain it. I have come to see that they truly do contain divine instruction concerning our human nature. And I have discovered not only some new things about the feminine genius, but as I mentioned, the masculine genius as well. I just want to make a, a comment about this project in general. I know John Paul left out the masculine genius. He didn't write about that. But I want to just make clear, not one man cannot do everything. I am certain that I have his blessing. Don't tell anyone, but I've been praying to him since 2005. I finished my chapter on him in my dissertation the day before he died. Okay, so I'm, he's with me. He's saying, you go, girl, up there. I know he is. And one day I said to myself, how can I write on the masculine genius? I'm a girl. And then I realized, wait a second, JB2 was a guy. And von Hildebrand, Dietrich von Hildebrand says that a woman will be able to see into a man in ways that a man never would, and vice versa. Okay, so, all right, just, just in case anyone out there is thinking that this is just hubris or something. So I think I have a sort of agreement with him. And this is a legitimate development of JP2's project. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, I have learned that to speak of the feminine genius without a concomitant and full recognition of the genius of man is to risk creating a distortion in our understanding of what it means to be either one. It definitely risks what Sister Prudence Allen describes as a kind of gender polarity, where one gender is considered superior to the other, 
The feminine genius cannot be understood apart from the genius of man. And the emphasis that has been placed on it these past few years, while understandable and important, has at times seemed to tend toward its own brand of Catholic feminism, leaving men in some kind of theological limbo. And so this is what I have been working on. He tells us in Christi Fidelis Leici, the only way you're going to understand the place that women should occupy in the church and in the world is to understand the nature of woman in relation to man. That's what I've been doing. Now, I would never really question the Pope, and I will father, follow whatever direction Pope Francis gives, but I actually don't think it's a good idea to pursue a theology of women. I am not really sure what that would mean anyway. My paper on the masculine genius was sent to the Vatican last spring and has also now been published, so I am expecting a call from him any day. <laughs> and if he calls, I will tell him that what we need is a theology of complementarity. And I guess I am hoping to suggest a direction on that tonight. A few general comments about these two accounts as standalone texts are in order before we look at them together. First of all, it is important to note that though we have always thought of the main characters as Adam and Eve, only Eve is actually ever named, and even then, not until after the fall. They are referred to in the first account by the word Adam, which comes from Adama, or Earth. And in the original language, Adam is a reference to man in the collective sense, what the philosophers, the Thomists especially, would now call man per se, or man as such. When at Genesis 1.27, God says, let us make man in our image, he does not mean the individual man, Adam, the husband of Eve. He means man in the abstract man as such, what the philosophers again would call man per se. Human being is made in the image of God. Now, when the sacred author states, male and female, he created them, what you need to realize is that the words in the original Hebrew, zakar and mekeba, are not nouns. They are adjectives. They come out, we translate them male and female, and sometimes we refer more precisely to that as masculinity and femininity, but these are adjectives, not noun, and they describe man as such. Adam means man as such, and Adam is Zakar and Nekeba. Now this does not mean that man per se is created more, both male and female, I prefer to use the words active and receptive. It means that man as such has the capacity for relationality built right into him, which is just a further specification of the received tradition that man is made in God's image and therefore in his, is in his very nature built for relationship. But as I prove more definitively in all sorts of footnotes and stuff in the article is that when you consider what this means, is that both man and woman simply must be understood to be absolutely equal. Both instantiations of the same substantial form, you recognize that language, right? Equally endowed with intellect, will, and freedom. Both characterized by receptivity and a capacity for action. So there's a whole lot more we could say about that in order to prove it, but you, you just have to permit me to posit at this point that the first account has established that man and woman are equal. If you have questions about that, we can talk about it later. The second account is a little more complicated, and its significance impossible to understand without some philosophical language, but here is where we begin to see what differentiates them. Here we find a very different description of the creation of man and woman. At Genesis 2.22, Eve is made or built, the Hebrew word is banach, out of one of the man's ribs. And both God and the man are finally content that a proper helper has been found. 
Here the sacred author refers to man and woman as Ish and Isha. These are references to individual and concretely existing persons. At, at Adam is fashioned from Adama, from the earth. Eve is made from Tsela, his rib. And a different word is used to describe her coming into being. She is built, Bana, from Adam's rib. So the philosophers would say now that in the second creation account, designated matter and the principle of individuation have been introduced into the equation. Sorry, I got, I got it. You know, there might be someone out there that's looking for the steps, so I'm just going to give you a few of them. Man and woman, or the Isha and Isha of the second account, are the result of particular matter being introduced. The substantial form or soul that makes man what he is absolutely, illuminated in the first account, has now found individuation and differentiation via the designated matter that the form animates in the second. Okay, that's the worst part. Okay, I'm done with Okay, but it has to be said. The complementarity that characterizes the nature as such has now been embodied. Man, per se, has the principle of complementarity in there. Why would that? Philosophers, you should know the answer to this. Something cannot be in the effect, which is not first in the cause, right? So you have to have some kind of explanation for that. So the complementarity that characterizes the nature as such has now been embodied in two concretely existing beings differentiated by two distinct but related kinds of matter. There's a whole lot to this explanation. It includes the notion of commensuration, substance and accent, all that. We really can't go deeply into that because I can see I'm already, you're already panicking. How much longer are we going to have to listen to this? It gets, it gets easier. But um, let me just count then on your good faith and simply report what we can learn from the second account. First, and this is important, lest we turn ourselves into materialists, though matter appears to be the principle of differentiation, individually existing persons cannot be reduced to the matter of which they are made. For our essence is a composite substance made of body and soul. And so though matter is one of the things that differentiates me from uh, man, since I am composed of both body and soul, and since my soul is meant for me, this is the principle of commensuration, I am, in some essential way, a woman. And Father here, Father Nathan, is in some essential way a man. In Aquinas, gender is an inseparable accident. What does that mean? It means that it is attributable to the composite. Gender is not the same kind of accident that brown hair or blue eyes is. That's an accident attributable to the matter. And when I die, my reddish hair <laughs> remains red mysteriously. <laughs> my blue eyes, those go away. But when I go to heaven, I go as Deborah. Okay? I am a woman. And there's all kinds of things that are so interesting in Aquinas about this. As Father said, what I'm trying to do is extend Thomas's categories to account for these questions, which we know for sure he would be all over this question if he were here. He'd be like, oh, sorry, I missed that. That Aristotle, he got me all thrown off. Right? Okay. Okay, so, <clears throat> all right, I said all that, I said all that. Um, my womanness does not reside in me merely in the matter of which I am made. It is who I am, as JP2 states, both physically and ontologically. Men and women are equal, composite creatures, differentiated by the matter of which they are made, and this is true of both of them. And thus we have, from Scripture, and this is what I needed to get to, proof, proof, that neither the male nor the female of the species can be considered normative for the species. We are both composite beings differentiated by an, through matter, but an accident that is attributable to the composite. We're, we're both, we're not only equal in the sense that we are both instantiations of the same substantial form, possessing reason, intellect, will, and freedom, we're also equal in the way we are different. Do you see what I mean? 
And so for all of Western history, because it, God bless Aristotle, he's a giant, I'm not mad at him, but he did say women are malformed males, he did say that. And that's kind of, so as a result, in a way, men have been considered, the masculine of the species has been considered normative for the species. You don't get to say that anymore. That is not true. Okay. So what does this mean? It means I don't have to act like a man to be considered human. And the men in this room don't have to act like a woman to be considered human either. You don't need to cry. You don't feel like it. Although if you want, go ahead. You know? You get, to be a, you get to be a man, and I get to be a woman. We have two equally human but differentiated ways of being in the world. This is actually huge. This is like historical. Is anyone getting that? This is historical. Okay. So that's the, the, the back story. And so now we're ready to look at what we can discover by considering the two accounts together and a bit more broadly. And the first point of interest begins in Genesis 1, where the sacred author seems to lay out a particular hierarchical order in which we see God clearly creates. He begins, God begins with the heaven and the earth, then light. He then divides the waters, then creates dry land. There's sea monsters in there somewhere, right? This all culminates in the creation of Adam. Human nature created masculine and feminine, or if you prefer, active and receptive. That's much better. Anyway, it's clearly a hierarchy on its way up from lower form, life forms to higher, okay? Now, the second account also indi indicates a sort of hierarchy. It is though the as though the cosmic hierarchy described in the first account becomes more personal in the second. For there we read at 2.7 that a particular man is fashioned from the dust of the earth, and when at Genesis 2.18 God sees that man is alone, God forms every creature and brings them to the man to be named, right? And then God, realizing that none of the creatures correspond to man's own being, and that it is not good for him to be alone, decides it is necessary to make a fitting helper. The words are azer kenegdo. He then puts him into a deep sleep and forms the woman from the man, man's rib, from, from the man's rib. So Adam says, when Eve appears, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And as JP2 says, in Eve he recognizes another person, a being equal to himself, a someone, not a something. A someone he can love, to whom he can make of himself a gift, and who can reciprocate in kind. Fairly straightforward. But there are several additional and important points to glean from considering these two chapters together. First of all, it is only when we come to the making of woman that we see the final significance of the order introduced in the first account and brought to completion in the second. Man is made from the earth, Adama, but woman is made from man. And though it has troubled feminists forever, and is arguably at the beginning point of the historical misinterpretation of this passage, the fact that woman is created second is not to make her subservient, because woman is not created second, she is created last and on the way up. She is the last creature to appear, a creature made not from earth, but from something that arguably already contains a greater actualization than dust or clay. Would you rather be made from mud or from Adam's rib? <laughs> Take a vote. <laughs> it is certainly plausible to suggest that she is made of finer stuff. This is really controversial. <laughs> Science certainly can tell from just a few DNA cells whether or not what they're looking at is a man or a woman, right? And women are said to be more sensitive, no? So we could go further, but at least minimally we can say that because of the order suggested, 
by reading the accounts together, woman can be seen, as the tradition has always affirmed, as the pinnacle of creation, not as a creature whose place in that order is subservient or somehow less in stature than that of man. This proposition is reinforced when we consider that the Hebrew word usually translated as helper is azer. You guys, are you excited? Because, I mean, you should be so excited about this. <laughs> azer. It actually does not mean servant or slave. When this word is used elsewhere in scripture, especially the Psalms, it has the connotation of divine aid. Used here to express helper or partner, it is a word that indicates someone who is most definitely not a slave or even remotely subservient. There is a sense of an equal, a partner, help sent by God. Thus, woman is not built to be his servant, a different word would have been used if that were the intention, and unless you mean, you know, we're all servants of Christ, you know, in Christ, and so I get that. But Eve is, there, is sent as someone who can help him to live. Think about this for marriage preparation, wives. It's your job to help your husband live. It's not your job to clean the kitchen. I mean, you should probably clean the kitchen, but... <laughs> Occasionally, your job is to help your husband to live, to become. You are divine aid to him. However, it is immediately essential to note the full text. It is Azar Konegdo. Konegdo is a preposition that means in front of, in the sight of, before, in the spatial sense. And so, what we, we must recognize that while Eve is not below Adam in the order of creation, neither is she above him. She stands in front of him, before him, meeting his gaze, as it were, and sharing in the responsibility for the preservation of all that precedes them. After all, at Genesis 1.27, both male and female are given the command to subdue the earth and fill it. The nate... You got, do you understand? There has never been, and I'm not claiming that mine's the final word on it or anything, but there has never been an adequate account of the nature of woman in relation to man in our history. There hasn't. JP2 tries, he sort of suggests a theory, but he doesn't complete the project. It's up to us to figure this out. And I would say that the nature of woman in relation to man is finally clear. Woman and man are equal, equal, equally possessed of intellect, will, and freedom, but they are also, in a sense, equal in their difference because while both are composites of body and soul, they are each distinguished by the matter of which they are made. Both are characterized by a capacity for action and receptivity while placed face to face in the order of creation, but complements of each other. Both are equally responsible for filling the earth and subduing it, but somehow tasked with somewhat different missions. And as we shall see, a particular genius that belongs uniquely to them. For there is more to be grasped from the text than this. And so now we'll talk about the masculine and feminine genius. First, it is notable that man is apparently in the garden alone with God for some period before the appearance of woman, something that has important implications for the place he occupies in the created order and the traditional understanding of man as the head of the household. But aside from this special relationship with the creator, this is the masculine genius part, in case anybody's, did I miss that? Aside from this special relationship with the Creator, it can be said that man's first contact with reality is of a horizon that otherwise contains only lower creatures, what we might call things, but in the Latin it's res. And you've got to say it that way, you've got to go res, because it's got weight, it's a something, it's a Thing. It has identity. This is what leads God to conclude that the man is incomplete and alone and ultimately leads to the building of woman. But here's what I say. 
that man's orientation toward things is clearly a part of God's design. In fact, it may provide a point of departure in Scripture for the well-documented evidence that men seem more naturally oriented toward things than toward persons. Man is tasked with naming all the things God brings him, including woman. It is in naming them that he takes dominion over them. Now, Aquinas argues that man must have received a distinct preternatural gift in order to make it possible for him to name everything God brought him. In order to name things well and have dominion over them, man would have, would have to gain some kind of direct knowledge of them and to possess a certain familiarity and sophistication with them. It can thus be said that man knows things, things, in a way that woman simply does not. And here is where we come to the core of what I propose as man's genius. He learns that he excels at discovering what things are, how they are to be distinguished from each other, and what they are for. This is his gift. Go into your husband's, your boyfriend's, your father's um, tool shop, and if he's really into it, you're going to see like a million tools, and they all have their spot. I go in, I go, I'm looking for a wrench, you know, and Andrew's like, well, not that kind of wrench. I mean, no, that's not the right tool for the job. So I would argue that it is man's capacity to name things, to determine what can be predicated of something and what cannot. This is not just men like toy trucks and hammers. This shows up in the way men think and what they accomplish, because what they do is they think through what can be predicated of something and what cannot. They have an ability to arrive at a systematic way and an ability to arrive at a systematic way of judging the matter that constitutes the gift that men bring to the tasks of human living. It is man who at Genesis 2.15, and well before the fall, puts him at odds with creation, who is put in the garden to till it and to keep it. Man is actually the only one who gets a specific job. This is his work. The genius of man is found in his capacity to know and to use the goods of the earth in the service of authentic human flourishing. Now this orientation toward things does not mean that man is somehow disordered. Man's first contact with reality includes the Lord God. He is, in the first instance, aware of his dependence upon his Creator, and he is truly marked by that relationship forever after. And it is within this context that he encounters the woman. Until the woman is brought to him, both to name and to love as he can love no other, he has no other like himself. And though this will change after the fall, he knows immediately that the woman is not a thing, not an object. She is a person. And he knows that he cannot have dominion over her in the same way he has over everything else. Am I running out of time, Father? What time? How much time do I have? Am I good? Okay. Do you guys agree with that? Okay. Okay. I have to tell you the whole story, or I might leave something out, and then you wouldn't, I don't know. Okay. So the contemporary, here's the point, the contemporary dissatisfaction with the tendency of man to attend to things more than to people completely overlooks the fact that the things of creation also have ontological status. They may be lower creatures, but they are creatures, and as such are held in existence by God in much the same way that human persons are. The masculine inclination toward things and their uses is an aspect of the charism of men, and in many ways it accounts for the building up of human civilization, has led throughout history to human flourishing, and has made and still makes possible the preservation of families and of culture. 
we would not be here in this room enjoying this nice climate controlled room and the beautiful building and all that without guys. If it weren't for men, we would still be living in caves, afraid to come out. You see what I mean? Their proper response to men is not ridicule, even though we can laugh about you know this, that, and the other thing, if we want. Proper response is not um, ridicule, but gratitude. Let me say that again. The proper response is not ridicule, it is gratitude. Thank you, men, for your charism. It shows up in fatherhood. We don't have time to go into that, but that's, yeah, okay. <clears throat> now to woman. In contrast to man, and of special significance is the quite legitimate claim that since woman comes into existence after man, her first contact with reality is of a horizon that from the beginning includes man. It includes persons. One can imagine Eve, a person also endowed with reason and free will, who upon seeing Adam would recognize another like her, an equal, while the other creatures and things around her appear only on the periphery of her gaze. This exegetical insight seems to provide a starting place in scripture for the equally well-documented phenomenon that women seem more naturally oriented toward persons. In Moliere's Dignitatum, John Paul argues that the feminine genius is grounded in the fact that all women have the capacity to be mothers, and that this capacity, whether fulfilled in a physical or spiritual sense, orients her toward the other, toward persons. There is plenty of evidence to demonstrate that claim, and in every sense, Eve is certainly the mother of all mankind. But the point is that in addition to her capacity to conceive and nurture human life, Indeed, prior to it, woman's place in the order of creation reveals that from the beginning, the horizon of all womankind includes persons, includes the other. Just picture her first, she opens her eyes, and who is there? Adam. This may explain why girls and women seem to know from the beginning, that they are meant for relationship. While it takes men a bit longer to look up and realize they are lonely for something they only just realized was missing. Right, girls? You ever waiting for that phone to ring? That's, that's not so funny. I suppose that's not so funny. But... Okay, so men take a while to, to look up and, real, you know, they find out something's missing and then they look around for the one who can complete them. So the genius of woman is found here. While man's first experience of his own existence is of loneliness, woman's horizon is different right from the start. From the first moment of her own reality, woman sees herself in relation to the other. The fall will result in a disorder in this inclination. Eve's desire will now be for a relationship with man even when he knows he is using her as an object. But the preceding analysis has shown that this capacity to include the other is not a lesser quality. It is not something that unnecessarily complicates things, diverting us from an otherwise clear line of sight to achieving results. Nor does it compromise woman's fundamental intelligence, her competence, her ability to get things done. Woman's genius is to keep constantly before us the fact that the existence of living persons, whether in the womb or walking around outside of it, cannot be forgotten while we frantically engage in the tasks of human living. Woman is responsible no matter where you work, for reminding us all that all human activity is to be ordered toward authentic human flourishing. So I have some more that I want to say about original sin, but I have a feeling I'm running out of time. Is that true? It's at 8 o'clock. 
Okay, so I will skip that and we'll talk about original sin during the Q&A period if you like. It's, if you think about original sin and how it's different for man and woman, it sort of proves my theory. Um, man, uh, man will be, have a disordered relationship to creation, to things, and woman will have trouble with relationships. Adam starts to think of everything as an object, and women go right along with them, kind of. Except for us, of course, here. Now, what does all this have to do with creating human history? Hopefully you've been able to make out some of that yourself as we've gone along here, but there are some things that certainly must be said before we can consider our work done. First, um, the, the first is for everyone here, all men and all women, to take seriously the fact that your nature as woman or as man includes a particular genius, a charism, a gift. And it is your job to develop that genius, to share it without fear or any hint of stinginess, and to allow yourself to be acted upon by grace until you realize it as a supernatural reality. Mary and Joseph are the uh, prototypes of both of these, and so you can be pretty sure that grace is involved somehow. Um, men, do not apologize for your fascination with things and their creative uses. It is your gift. Use it wisely to serve your family, the body of Christ, and the common good. And women, do not hold back when you know that what is at stake are human lives and persons. The priest that did our marriage preparation told me that the woman has the big picture and she is responsible for the life of the family. He didn't say you're responsible for keeping the house clean. He said you're responsible for the life of the family. Take that seriously. You are equipped with the same rational powers as men are. Use them. It is a myth that men are objective and women are subjective. Men are object-oriented and women are person-oriented. Men are not necessarily more objective than you are, though women must admit in all humility that we can benefit from man's somewhat less cluttered perspective on things. We cannot forget that we have a task too. Your task, wherever you work, whether in the home or in the public square, is to remind them that one cannot make of oneself a gift to a bottom line, a home project, or fantasy football. These things may be fascinating, but they cannot reciprocate. At the other end of every gift of self is always and only another self, a person. Do not apologize for the fact that you can see things they do not and accept that they know things that you do not. Work together, ask questions, listen to each other in charity, and never forget that, that we are all under the sway of original sin and that it manifests constantly, albeit differently, in men and women. Resist getting sucked into what um, Pope uh, Ratzinger calls the, the logic of sin. Finally, all of this takes place within the context of human history. Our everyday lives are made of it. We live in dangerous times. One by one, our liberties are being threatened as the onslaught of the sexual revolution morphs into a political campaign for the idea that truth is what we say it is. We are told in Gaudium et Spes that all of human life, whether individual or collective, shows itself to be a dramatic struggle between good and evil, between light and darkness. Our mission involves a struggle with forces that cannot always be seen, nor can they finally be defeated, not until the second coming of Christ. And the first thing critical to anyone going into battle is knowledge of the enemy. And if we have a mission, and the church tells us we do, then we must face the fact that only a fool pursues a dangerous mission without having some sense of who the opposition is and what he is planning. And I think we all know who it is, 
Monsignor Ronald Knox said, uh, like to say, it is so stupid of modern civilization to have given up believing in the devil when he is the only explanation of it. Only the father of lies could be behind this situation, and he must be named, because unless we name it, we might pretend with the rest of humanity that it isn't so, and make the mistake of thinking we can solve this problem on our own if we just think hard enough about it. The mission we face will require us to struggle with forces that go beyond the day-to-day -day vicissitudes of the political situation in Washington or disappointing court decisions. It will require more from us than bearing down and working harder or simply sharpening our presentation skills. The situation requires saints, for only saints will find their strength in that which does not fail. I have just one last comment, and that is to remind you that the job of the laity is to transform the world. The church teaches, um, and I'm not sure everyone got the memo on this, that the vocation of the laity is found in the context of the temporal order and in the midst of their earthly duties. That is where the laity receive their call from God. And thus we are able to say that it is not the dream of a naive or youthful idealist to declare that he or she has a wish to save the world. That is, in fact, our job. We do not work out our salvation by hanging around the rectory. We work it out in the midst of the temporal order by transforming it, by returning it to Christ. It is, in a sense, how we get to heaven. And of course, that is our real mission. We're here to help each other get to heaven. St. Augustine tells us that courage is the capacity to endure for the sake of what is loved. We are not called to be successful, only faithful. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.